The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. continuing on in 1 John, so uh, you should be able to have a Bible underneath. Go ahead and grab that. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John 3, uh, 11 through 24. Uh, last week we were out at the beach, and so uh, we talked actually about simplicity last week, which was uh, really encouraging, um, but we're going to jump back in. And uh, at this point in the book, John is very repetitious. If you read the book of 1 John, it's a really good book. If you're New to the faith, and you don't really know where to start. Where should I start reading the Bible? Listen, the Gospel of John and First John are really good places to start because they talk about the essentials of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to know Him and, and to love Him and to love others. And so, John, uh, John keeps talking about the same thing over and over again, but in a little different themes. And one of the things that you learn, uh, if you've been in leadership at all, one of the things that you learn is that when you're tired of talking about something, people that you're leading are just starting to get it. Right? I mean, you're like, we've been talking about this for like six months, and somebody's like, oh man, what a great idea, bless. You know, and you're like, oh. You know, but that's just, that's the, that's just the part of leadership is that like, you know, when you, when you think that you have just talked about something until, you know, like you can't talk about it anymore, people are just now like, hey, that's a great idea, we should do it. And John realizes that, and so he realizes that our problem isn't comprehending, it's actually applying it. And so that's why he's talking about these themes over and over and over again. Because he's like, listen, yeah, I'm sure you understood and could regurgitate that after I told it to you the first time, but your life doesn't reflect that you know it, that you're living it. And so he's going to be talking about these themes over and over and over again, and he puts a little different slant on it, a little different emphasis on it. Um, but... Uh, the, the book kind of breaks in two parts, God is light and God is love, and we see how those are reflected. And so uh, right now in, in verse 11, chapter 3, he starts kind of this change where he starts emphasizing the idea that God is love and how that impacts us, how that changes us as a result. And so we are going to dive and read uh, verses 11 through 24. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For wherever or whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment 
that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given to us. This is God's word. So the big idea that's going to guide our time is that love is the evidence and essence of the Christian faith. Love is the evidence and the essence of the Christian faith. We showcase this or or his love by laying our lives down for one another. This love is evidenced and showcased, displayed for people to see when we lay our lives down for one another. And so uh, the passage is three paragraphs, three points, pretty easy. Uh, But it's the evidence of love in verses 11 through 15. Or the evidence, sorry, the evidence of life, which is love in 11 through 15. The essence of love in verses 16 through 18. And then the heart's assurance, the heart's assurance in verses 19 through 24. And so first, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15, uh, the evidence of life, the evidence of life, which is love. So about seven months ago, uh, Emily was uh, much larger, and she was in the hospital giving birth to our son, Theo. And uh, I was there, and uh, I experienced it. I saw it, didn't, didn't intend to see everything I saw, but it was a, it's, yeah, it's terrifying and it's beautiful. You know, there were two nurses in there. I thought, I thought I'd be fine. And the nurse was like, you hold a leg. And then it was just over. Um, and so, but when Theo was born, you know, I was there as he took his first breath. And I was there as his heartbeat for the first time. You know, and praise the Lord, he was alive. Right? I mean, that's the signs of new life, of seeing this new birth, this brand new baby come forth and seeing him take his first breath before he's ever, when he's never taken a breath and seeing his heart begin to beat out. And you know, you know, he starts moving and crying pretty soon later. He's alive. He, he's alive. And so too, the Bible talks about that there is a more profound birth than that. That though every single one of us have been born physically, that there is a much deeper and more profound birth and it's from above. It's called being born again. And he says, what is, what's the evidence of that? How do you know that someone has been born from above, right? I mean, it's usually fairly obvious if someone is alive or not, you know? I mean, but how do you know if someone is alive spiritually? And this is what John is aiming to, to teach us. He says, how do you know that someone is alive? Love. He says, this is how we know that someone has passed from death to life, is that they they love the brothers, that there's a genuine concern and care for, for others, that this is, this is an evidence, it's a fruit of what it means to be born from God. In verse 11, it says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And hear this, the message of the Christian faith is one of God's love for humanity, God's love for you. And that is the message that that we start with and that we continue with, if we ever deviate from that message that God's heart is love, then we begin to distort the gospel and we begin to run into ruin in our own lives. That we think it's, it's, it's common sense and so therefore we forget it. One of the uh, famous Swiss theologians, Karl Barth, he was a uh, in this uh, showcase and talking about systematic theology and uh, afterwards he had a student come up to him and ask him, so what do you believe? Can you sum up your theology? You know, can you sum up kind of what you believe? An, an immense task, you know? And so uh, Barth sat there in silence for a little bit and he said, you know, I think that what I believe can be summed up with this. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that this is the message of the gospel, is that it is so simple that a child can understand it, but yet it will continue to propel us and to push us into the deep, even as we grow in our maturity as adults in the faith. He says, this is a message, and it's been from the beginning, and it will continue on until the end, that that God is love and he desires that we would love one another. John 15, 35, it says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus invites the world to judge whether we are true or not by our love for one another. To look in and say, there's something unique, there's something different about those people because look at the way they know each other but yet they don't turn away. That they don't abandon one another. Instead, they are true. They stick fast, even in spite of the hurt and the pain and the differences. You know, I mean, listen, we're, we can't choose the family we're born into. Amen, anybody? Right? I mean, like, you know, you're born into that family, and sometimes it's great. You're like, this is awesome. Sometimes you're like, I can't stand that person. And you go through seasons where it's easier than others. But so, too, listen, we don't, God intended that we don't just simply pick out, well, I'm going to go to this church because I like everybody. (laughs) And if there's anybody that offends me, I'm going to go and I'm just going to have church on my own because, you know, I like me sometimes. (laughs) And so, listen, you, there are people that it's going to be much easier to love because they don't press any of your buttons. They're like you. They get along with you. And there are going to be people that if you really dig in, if you really follow Jesus, there are people that's going to be hard for you to love. I mean, you don't think Jesus had that? I mean, he's with his disciples, and he's right before he's going to die, and they're arguing about who's going to have power in his kingdom. They're not like, oh, Jesus, how can we encourage you? How can we comfort you? They're like, all right, so this kingdom's coming. Like, how are we going to split this thing up? And so he, you know, I mean, following, I mean, Jesus himself dealt with people and invited people that were difficult to love into relationship with him because he knew that that's how we're changed. We are changed, not by simply staying in our comfort zones and only being with people that we like and that get along with us and they don't ruffle our feathers. Because how will this world ever change if we stay like that? If we just sit in our bubbles and say, well, I'm only going to invite people in that are just like me. He says, no, we, the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another, if we love people that are radically different than us, that at times disagree with us. And so we defined what love is in a previous term. I want to just repeat it, that love is a passionate commitment. It's a passionate commitment to the ultimate good of another person. You see, sometimes we think that love is, um, is a type of feeling or emotion that we have, that I have, to, uh, I have to feel warm and fuzzies for this person. And listen, love at times feels like death. Right? I mean, when, when someone has hurt you, when Jesus says, he says, love those who persecute you, love your enemies, it, at times love is going to feel like death, but he promises that it will bring life, and it's a commitment to the good of another person, to saying, I'm going to put their good above, above myself. And, and John contrasts it, right? So as soon as he starts talking about it, he says that you should love one another, he says, here's the opposite. Here's what not to do. Don't kill each other. <laughs> 
that's a pretty good idea of what not to do. And he gives the example of, of Cain. And he goes back to Genesis 4 and he says, don't be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So it's not, that's not a good idea to do in church. We wouldn't have much of a church if everybody got jealous and killed the other person. But, but that's what it began is that we see Adam and Eve, their firstborn, Cain, he was by himself and then they had his brother Abel. And they both came before the Lord to present a, a, a gift, an offering before the Lord. And Cain brought fruit and Abel brought the first, the best of the flock. And it doesn't spell out exactly what it was, whether it was the heart that separated them, whether Abel came with a heart of faith, we learn in Hebrews, and, and whether Cain didn't, or whether it was the type of sacrifice or offering that they gave, whether it was that Abel gave his best and his first and Cain gave his leftovers. But we know that, that Abel's offering was accepted by the Lord and, and Cain's was rejected and Cain's face fell. And God turns to me and says, Cain, if you, do not, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted also? He says, if it, listen, I'm not, I'm not rejecting you to reject you. If, you. if you do what is right, will not your offering also be accepted? And he says, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door and its desires to master you, to consume you. But you must master it. But he, he refused to heed God's advice and he rose up and he talked to his brother when they were in the field. Cain killed Abel. He killed Abel. And God cries out, and he says, where is your brother? And Cain goes, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. And John uses this as, as an example. He says that, that Cain is like the world, and that we as Abel are, are, that Abel is like those that are following Christ. And he says that you, you need to have a proper expectation that Life isn't always going to be rosy and it's not always going to be easy and that everybody you encounter, especially in the world, is going to like you. Now hear this, as Christians, when we follow Jesus, there are times where our good deeds, where loving and following Jesus, it's going to attract people. But there are also times where it's going to enrage people and anger them and they're going to want to destroy it. Jesus says that we are the salt and light of the world. And therefore, there are times where because we follow Jesus, we desire equality. We desire to serve the poor. We desire that, that racism would be destroyed, that we would love one another deeply and profoundly. So these things are, are, should draw the world in, our humility, our desire to serve and lay our lives down. But our insistence upon holiness, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that abortion is wrong, and that th these stands that we take, these stands that Christ takes, that this word takes, and that we, we take as followers of him, they at times are going to enrage the world and bring about persecution. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. I mean, Paul says it. He says, to some, we're aroma of life. We're the aroma of Christ for life, and they're gonna be drawn to it. And he says to others, we're the aroma of death to those that are passing away, and they hate it. I mean, we see this all throughout the scriptures, right? I mean, look at Noah. You think Noah faced a little persecution from the world? He's building an ark, you know? And, and people look and mock because of his obedience, because his obedience to God seems absurd to them. I mean, who builds an ark when it's not even raining? And yet for, you know, for a very long time, he persisted in his obedience in what seemed like foolishness. I mean, you go on and you look at, at Joseph, you know, Joseph had a dream from God. God gave him a dream. And what did it lead him to? His, his obedience it led him into 
his brothers selling him to slavery. And then he, he made a commitment to purity. He said, I will, I will not take my master's wife. I will instead, because how can I do this against God? He refused to compromise in his moral integrity and his purity and his sexuality. And what did it get him? He got thrown in prison. He got thrown in prison for it. I mean, we look at Daniel. I mean, Daniel had served faithfully. It served well. But because he refused to stop praying to God, he was thrown in the lion's den because he would not, he would not stop. We look at the story of John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist goes to Herod and he calls out Herod's corruption. So you see that the Bible talks about there are times where we are standing in the gap when there's political corruption, that we're not to be silent about it. And John the Baptist sees, he says, Herod, you, you're sleeping with your brother's wife. This is wrong and you know it's wrong. It's against the law of God, which you, you profess, you claim, and you know it's wrong. And what did it, got, what did it get John the Baptist? He got his head on a platter. I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus comes and he brings light into the darkness. And it says that the people love their darkness more than light. And therefore, what did they do? They tried to break and drown out the light. There's only two reactions that happen when your deeds are shown and they are seen to be evil. Either you realize and repent of your deeds and you are drawn towards the light. Or you say, I want to continue to walk in that deception I don't want to change. And so what I must do is destroy the light. I must destroy the standard so that I can go on believing that my standard is good enough. And so you see that that's what it is. And he says, we have to have a proper expectation. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Because if you're surprised that the world hates you, then you're not going to be able to love them. You're not going to be able to anticipate that hatred and in turn show grace. Now, in a much less degree, I'm realizing this with just like having proper expectations about Theo, you know? So he is, we had him sleeping for like three, four months, you know? We were like, we're, we're, we're getting this thing down. And he's sleeping through the night. And just recently, he has had a sleep regression. And so he is now waking up about 3, 3.30, 4. And like when you have your expectation for three or four months that he's sleeping through the night and all of a sudden he doesn't sleep through the night, you're not the most uh, gracious person and so, you know, but when I expect, when I expect that he is going to wake up and that this is what a baby does, then I'm much more gracious in that. I anticipate that. And therefore, there's grace, there's mercy. But before when it's like, hey, we've got this pattern down, you're doing great, and then all of a sudden, no more. And so too, I mean, in a much, in a much greater degree, when we don't anticipate that the world is going to come after us, when we don't anticipate that because of our stance on certain things, that people are going to, maybe they're not going to be our friend. Maybe they're going to say things about us. I mean, at times, it's not unknown that the people are want to take physical violence. But he says, anticipate this. For Jesus says, the world hated me. If you follow me, it's going to hate you as well. Now, this doesn't mean that we're jerks for Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're looking for a martyrdom. It means that we're genuinely trying to follow Christ. And in that process, it's going to naturally bring those things. So he, he goes on and he talks about, uh, well, we'll move on to 16 to 18. He talks about the essence of love. 
right? So what, what is love? In verse 16, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And what does it mean by this we know love? Listen, our, our definition of love has been redefined because of Christ. So now our definition of what love is, of how love is shown, is defined by Christ's love for us. But not only do we know it in an uh, in a academic setting or, or what it should look like in a definition, but we experience it. We know love because we have experienced love by Christ. And it says we know it how because he laid down his life for us. And what does it mean that, that Christ laid down his life? What did the love of Christ look like in laying it down? It meant he limited himself. Christ had no limitations, but yet he bound himself in time. He bound himself in, in power. He limited himself by taking on humanity. Do you not think that love in your life at times is going to limit you because your care for other people? It limited him. Not only did that, it limited him, but it, it, he, he took on the, the posture of a servant. He laid his life down and his right to be served. If anybody des- deserved to be served, it was Jesus Christ, the creator of all. But yet he laid his right to be served down. And instead he, he served. Do you not think that love in your life, it might look like laying your rights down? Laying what you think you deserve, what you are owed down? and taking the posture of a servant rather than the one who ought to be served. And not only that, but, but Jesus didn't just serve, but he, he gave up his physical life. He laid his life down literally in our place, in our stead. And this is, this is the essence of what it means to love. It says, that he laid down his life, lent himself physically, time, he emptied himself, he became poor, became a servant. A person's, a person's life is his most precious possession. Consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we can commit against him. While to give one's own life on his behalf is the greatest possible expression of love for him. This then is the ultimate contrast, Cain's hatred issued in murder, Christ's love and self-sacrifice. Indeed, true love, agape, is self-sacrifice. Love is the giving impulse. It's by law. And this is what the essence of love is. The essence of love is self-sacrifice, the giving of ourselves for the betterment of one another. And so what's the opposite of love then? Self-preservation, self-obsession, self-entitlement. This is the opposite of what love looks like, is that when I'm so consumed around myself and that I am willing to, to put someone else down in order that I might have, in order that I might be benefited. And you see what love is, is, is love says, listen, I will gladly lay down my rights, I will gladly lay down my time, my finances, in order that they might have, even if it costs me. This is the, the essence of love. He talks about that not only is this, not only should we be willing to give our lives, he says that because Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And he says to receive this love is to show it. 
If you, if you claim, if you say, oh, I've received God's love, but yet that love never moves through you to others, then John would ask, have you really received it? Or do you merely comprehend it? Has it really, have you really, do you really know it? Has it really saturated your heart and your life? Because to know it is to show it. And so if you have received the, the life of Christ in you, it will lead you to lay down your lives for your brothers. And so how is God calling you in your life to lay, lay it down for others? Who in your family, who in your friend, maybe who in this church has God called you to begin to lay your life down for them, self-sacrificially to give in order that Christ might gain glory? And as much as this, hopefully you're challenged, I'm challenged by this, but also I want to encourage our, our church family. I think that when I look at our church, I think our church desires to do this and does this well. Laying down your, your finances, laying down your time, encouraging one another in love. I've, I've, I've been in, in a variety of churches and I'm so thankful to be a part of this body because I see that. I see the way that there's an earnest desire to know and to love one another to sacrifice in order that others might have. And so I want you to be encouraged that there are many of you that are living this out, that you are denying yourself, you're denying certain things that you could have in order that others might have, in order that they might, might whether it's food or whether it's treatments or whether it's, you know, classes. I mean, you, our body loves one another. And so as Paul says, you know, that we, would, we wouldn't just say, oh, great, but we would continue to strive for that. Because that is so desperate what the world needs is to look in to see a, a body that does this, that lays down their lives for one another. But John goes and, and he says, let's get specific with it, right? He says, that's great that we lay down our lives, but, but what does that look like practically? He says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You know, oftentimes it's easy to do these grandiose shows, but he says, would you do the daily death to yourself of maybe saying, hey, I'm going to save a little bit that I might give to them. I'm going to say no to this in order that I would have the resources to give to them. I'm going to deny myself of, of time here because I know that it honors and glorifies God to give time here. Because that's a lot harder you know, it's easier when everybody's watching to do a very large display or a very large gift, but to, to do the small desk, the everyday, mundane, ordinary things. And he says it starts with, do you see other people? If you see your brothers, do you see them? Because so often our culture keeps us so busy and we're so wrapped up in our to-do list and every day I've got this much to do that we don't see other people. We don't actually look into their lives and see the pain and see the hurt. We don't see what's going on. And therefore, if we don't see what's going on, how are we to meet those needs? And for me, this is one of the, the first things that goes when I'm not abiding in Christ. When I'm not having my time alone with the Lord on a daily basis, this is one of the first things that's stripped from me is I no longer begin to see other people because I'm so wrapped up in what I have to do. And so this is why your primary way of getting fed isn't just coming on a Sunday morning and hearing the word preached or coming to a Bible study that if you're not daily abiding with Christ, if you're not daily seeking him, you're gonna miss out on so many blessings. Jesus says that it's more blessed to give than to receive and he wants to give you blessing 
through giving of, uh, to others, through being his instrument in other people's lives. And that only happens as we are attentive to the spirit. As we submit our lives and say, God, use, use me. Help me to see other people around me. Help me not to be blind. And he says that if we see our brothers in need and we close our hearts, you know, there, there are times where all of us have done that. We see someone in need and we think, nope, sorry, don't have time for that. I gotta go here, I gotta do this, maybe later, or that's a mess. <laughs> I don't wanna walk into that. And we, we, we close our hearts. Now listen, not every need is a calling. I'm not saying that every time you see a mess that you gotta jump in and start cleaning up, but, but to see the need and to have our, and what it means to close our heart, our heart is our emotional center. It's what draws us in there. And he, he's got this idea of the good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan that's traveling, he sees this man beaten on the road and he sees him and compassion and mercy immediately move him to action. As he says, I can't leave. I don't, I don't care if this person's a stranger. I don't care if they're a different religion from me. I don't care if I don't know them. I can't leave them like this. Compassion is aroused up in him and it moves him to action. Do we have that heart that we've said, God, if I see someone in need, I want to move in that way. And unless the Lord hinders me, you know, I want to pray through that and I want to move towards that. And maybe I'm not the one that can do everything, right? Because we'll quickly get overwhelmed. But maybe I'm called to be an instrument of helping them to get into a place where they can receive that kind of help. James says it like this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and any one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's a story about a, a, a pastor that was going uh, by a, a beggar and the beggar said, could you spare some alms? Could you give me some money? And the pastor was like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And uh, he was in genuine need, you know, genuinely needed uh, reprieve from his condition. And, uh, and the beggar said, well, well, can you bless me? And then the pastor said, of course, I can bless you and blessed him. And the beggar said, well, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't have blessed me if it would have cost you anything. And so too, God desires that we would be moved and that we would seek to, to meet the needs of those that are around us. We talked about it last week, but God wants us to live simply in order that others might simply live. And C.S. Lewis in his Mere Christianity, he talks about, you know, charity, about what love is and about how we handle our finances. And he says, if, if I'm able to live the same way as a non-Christian that has the same amount of income, then I'm not following Christ, that I'm not really understanding what it means. He says that there should be things that I genuinely desire to do but are hindered because of my love for Jesus and because I desire to be a, a blessing to other people. And so might I just encourage you to say, do you have a budget? Do you know where your finances are actually going? Do you know where your time is going or are they spent frivolously? Because when we, when we say, God, I want to be a good steward in order that I might be generous to, to others, God honors that heart. We're gonna fall short all the time, but God honors that heart that yearns for that. It says, God, these finances, they are not mine. This time that you've given me, it's not mine. These talents that you've given me, they're not mine, they're yours. And so I wanna give them back to you, God, because I know that when you give them to God, he will multiply them far more than what we can. He's a better investor than we are. And so trust him, 
give over all of these things to the Lord and let him do what he can do with them. Now, and this looks like sometimes our love, we're excited about loving people in general, but we don't love anybody in particular. All right, it was like a, there's a kid that was like, you know, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. <laughs> Quote, it says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be one excuse for loving nobody in particular. So John writes that if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, he is in debt to him. Two factors place him as they place the Good Samaritan in a position of inescapable responsibility. First, he must, be, first he must see a brother's need, not merely casting a passing glaze, but see long enough to appreciate and understand the circumstances of the case. Right? We don't, our posture is when someone comes to us in need, we, know, we want to get to know that person. We don't want to simply just put a passing balm or, or just throw money at. We want to know that person. And so too, when, when, when people come for us, you know, food we almost immediately will give. Clothing we almost immediately will, will give. If someone comes to us and they have a, a light bill, they have something like that, we want to get to know, you know, tell us more about you. We want to do life with you. We want to get to know you. We want to see and understand what's going on in their circumstances. And this is what he means by you see, you perceive, not just a casting glance, but you understand well. You see long enough to appreciate and understand the circumstances of the case. Secondly, he must be in a position to meet his need. Must be in a position to meet his need. God has entrusted us with untold amounts of, of wealth as Americans. And this is not at all a guilt, like guilt at all, but it's just a reality that God has given us much. And his desire in giving us much is that we would give much, that we will be a good steward of what he's given to us. And so this means just being faithful with what it is that he, he's given to us. So the essence of love is self-sacrifice. It's generosity. It's opening up our hearts and lives to those that have need because we trust that God will provide for us. And God will take care of us. The last thing as we, uh, as we wrap up is in verses 19 through 24, it's kind of like an amendum. You know, he kind of like makes a break. And he's like, well, we've been talking about love, but I want to talk about assurance now. And so such a, a good thing. He starts by saying, this is how that you know that you have assurance. And then he kind of pauses. You know, he's like, this is how you know. But let me first talk about uh, what happens when your heart condemns you. What happens when you don't have assurance? What happens when your conscience, it cries out against you? And he says that there's two things. First, your conscience can cry out against you because you're genuinely wrong. You actually did something that was wrong. Your conscience is highlighting and saying, hey, that was not right. You shouldn't have done that. And there are other times where your conscience is crying out and your conscience is wrong. And your, your conscience is being aroused by Satan or it's being guilted by the world into believing something that isn't true. And he says, but either way, when our conscience, when, when our heart isn't assured, we don't have confidence, right? We're convicted. We're, we're wrestling inside. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I know I've wrestled that as a Christian. 
I know that there have been seasons of disobedience where I have not been honoring or following the Lord, and it's been evident. Like, I know, and I can be like, this is clearly where it is, but I just want to put a mask on and keep, you know, keep faking it. And, and that, you, there's no confidence, there's no power in your life because you're wrestling, you're double-minded. But there have been also times where the enemy wants to come in and he wants to use our conscience. And there's some people that, we have an overactive conscience. You know, every little thing is brought up and it's used to attack us and to seek to condemn us. And he says, this is where John comes in and he wants to encourage us. And he says, listen, our conscience is not our ultimate judge. Our conscience is a good thing. God gave it to us to help discern what's right and wrong. But our conscience is not the ultimate judge. He says, God is. And listen, listen to this. He says, moreover, in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 through 4, he says, moreover, it is required of stewards they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so he's saying here, he's saying, listen, like, I, I am going to put all of my trust, all of my hope in that the Lord sees and he is faithful and he knows whether I have been right or wrong, but I desire to have a clean conscience. I desire to have a pure heart. And so how do we, how do we know that we, and he, he says, this is how you know that you are a follower of Christ, that you're a child of God. It, this is one of the evidences. And so a couple things, he talks about belief, obedience, and love. So in belief, do I really believe rightly about Jesus? Do I really understand who he is and I do believe that, I believe that he is who he says he is? Obedience, am I really obeying God as I ought? Am I really obeying God as I ought to? And three, love, is my love for others what it should be? You know, sometimes I doubt, sometimes I disobey, sometimes hate comes seemingly out of nowhere and these things bother me. That is bad, right? No, it's actually good. Those who do not know Christ ask none of these questions. Such issues should not bother those with hard hearts, but they can trouble the Christian. And so listen, it doesn't mean that you love perfectly. It doesn't mean that, that always everything is, is right, but it means that you're unsettled by these things, that it causes you to yearn for those things to be right. And so that shows that we, we are of the faith. And he says, beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us. And so if you're here and your heart's condemning you, and, and you're having this wrestle in your conscience, what I would urge you is that John says, confess your sin to one another and confess your sin that he is faithful and righteous to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you confess your sin to one another, there's healing that comes. Make known. If you continue to wrestle inside and you don't actually bring that forth to light, it's going to strip you of any power in the Christian faith. It's gonna strip you of any confidence before God. And so he desires that you would have brothers and sisters that you would confess, open up to, do you have that? Do you have other people in your life that you genuinely make those things known and that are able to encourage you, able to share the gospel with you? And so he says, do that. And then he talks about, listen, there's blessing when your heart is assured. He says there's, there's confidence before God. And not only that, he says that your power and prayer will grow. He says, when you ask things from the Lord, God's going to hear your prayers are gonna be in line with God. And what this doesn't mean is, listen, God, I'll do these things if you'll answer these prayers, <laughs> right? God, I'll give this amount of money, but hey, I, I got something in my back pocket that I'm gonna need you to do for me, right? We don't manipulate, we don't control God by our obedience. What happens is that when we're obedient, when we, are, when we have confidence before God, when we're, our hearts are assured of him, 
we are more in line with his will and therefore we're praying more powerfully because our lives are centered in his will. When our lives are centered in his will, we know his will and are obeying his will. Therefore, our prayers will be in line with his will and will therefore have more power and have more frequency of being answered. And so he says that you want to you see your prayer life grow? Man, make known your sin. Confess it, repent of it, and seek to walk in obedience to God's will. Walk in purity. He says you will find greater power in prayer because of that. And he says, you know, the two things, you know, as we abide in him, it means that we believe in Christ and that we love one another. And how do we, how do we know? He says, because of the spirit whom he's given us. And, and this, is the, this is the most encouraging thing is that God has implanted his spirit. Jesus said, I've given another helper to be like, to be, to be with you. He will abide in you and dwell in you and be with you forever. And so what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is a helper it means that he comes in and he does what Jesus did, right? Jesus says, I've given you a helper that is like me, another one that is just like me. As the Holy Spirit comes in and he helps us to know God's love. He helps us to remember God's word. He convicts us and points us to obedience. And he says that this wrestling that we have, the spirit that lives in us, he assures us that we are God's children. He gives confidence in our life. It's so grateful. Paul in, in Romans, he talks about this. He says, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. The Holy Spirit comes in and helps us to put our sin to death in order that we would live in freedom and in power. And so as we close in prayer, I would ask you, cry out and ask, Holy Spirit, come. Search me, seek, seek in my heart if there's any evil way in me. Help me to live a life of confession, a life of purity that you might be made much of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to live inside of us. Um, God, I pray that we would have assurance that we are yours and that you are ours. And that this would bring confidence in our lives and power. Lord, not only power in prayer, but power in our witness, power in, uh, in our families, God's strength. And so God, rid us, rid us of the addictions, rid us of the sin that seeks to hold us captive and let us, let us run with freedom, Lord, this life that you've called us to. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.